0: And correct me where I'm wrong here, guys. You became best friends with Kanye and Lil Pump. (laughs) Am I overstating that
1: at all? If you Uh, ask
2: the crew at SNL, they'll tell you we're going on tour with them.
1: All right. Welcome back to another episode of Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives I'm really excited about this episode. It doesn't get more creative than this, Jed.
0: Uh, If you've seen Saturday Night Live over the last two seasons, and Sean, I know you haven't because you go to bed so early, uh, you have seen the work of Monkey Boys Productions. And our guests today are Michael Latini and Mark Petrosino, the co-founders of Monkey Boys. And they take us into the world of puppeteering, which includes things like imagining and fabricating and even performing with those puppets. The breadth of skills that these guys talked about and have was unbelievably impressive.
1: And factor in the crazy turnaround times for a show like SNL, it's unbelievable. But I'm not going to ruin it. Here we go, Monkey Boys Productions.
0: This one's awesome. I grew up on Muppets, 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 and then all of a sudden HBO comes out and there's Fraggle Rock and Mind Blown there too. So we have two guys with us today that are experts and the next generation. It's incredibly awesome.
1: This is one I've had circled for a long time. I think when we first brainstormed this, Jed, they were at the top of the list. Well, they were literally number one. If we were looking for uniqueness and just unknown sort of career paths from a creative creativity standpoint, these were the guys. So welcome, guys. Michael, Mark, welcome. Thank Thanks you. a lot.
0: Yeah. So, guys, if you can give us uh, a background of how. Um, maybe as kids, something like that, about how you became, you know, entranced by characters and puppetry and things like that, if that's how it happened.
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, similarly, I grew up watching the Muppets and Fraggle Rock and uh, Sesame Street, and um, but also realized how much I loved all the uh, practical effects films like uh, Star Wars and E.T. and all those amazing films that were utilizing puppetry, although not as much in the front as like the Muppets and stuff like that. I grew up loving that stuff. And then, uh, in high school, I did theater, uh, theater, both on stage and backstage. So I would perform and also do stage crew work. Um, I also did carpentry working with my dad, like home remodeling kind of stuff. And lots of the art classes went to college for, for art. I went to Tyler school of art and that's part of temple university. And, realized thinking, going into graphic design, I realized that, that wasn't what I want to do because it was too tight and it was still a little before everything was digital and it wasn't my thing then. So I switched over to jewelry, metals and computer aided design and got a degree in that. But while going through college is when I realized puppetry was kind of a combination of all the things I love to do, both performing and fabricating and working with my hands. Uh, so that's when I kind of said, Oh, There's all these people that are puppeteers. We might just not know about them. I've seen a bunch of behind the scenes featurettes and I saw like Jim Henson working with the puppets and Muppets. So uh, that's when I just started telling people I wanted to be a puppeteer. Um, I told the right person and got a volunteer position at a puppetry conference in Connecticut and that's where I started to meet professional puppeteers and they started to help me out and teach me their ways and I started to work for free and that led to real work and so on and so forth pretty much. Awesome. Mark. Mark.
2: Let's hear it. I need a bio here. Uh, what's a puppet? <laughs> uh, I I had just like both that, of you. You know,
1: that's a funny like, not to cut you off, but that Exi- was the debate, say,
0: the existential question of the century.
1: oh no, it was the debate here. Like, well, you know, layman's like us call them puppets, but like maybe it's maybe that's like not a word we should say. When we meet these guys and let them say puppets. <laughs> it's
2: right, like, It's <laughs> some secret dirty word. Yeah, yeah like a, oh, that's puppets. our word. Yeah. We use that word it's way
1: more. <laughs> fancier than puppet (laughs) i know puppet
2: it's it's such a great encompassing term uh if you don't mind the tangent uh we do a workshop sometimes with kids uh teaching what is a puppet because it is such a ubiquitous or not ubiquitous um so so hard to define yeah um but we've learned i don't know if it was bill baird or one of the great puppeteers had a great definition of a puppet as any inanimate object that you bring to life to entertain somebody else so it could be anything from a sock to kermit to a spoon. If you make a spoon dance and look sad, it's in essence a puppet, which is again, to reinforce what Mike was saying, why we got into this, it, it's it's a fun way to entertain people with our hands. We're both performers, but we're also both technically minded. Um, I grew up, my parents, while working normal uh, day-to-day jobs, also did a lot of community theater. And so I was exposed to a lot of great Theater as a child, everything from you know musicals to Shakespeare, and being a lover of the Muppets, I had a, 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 a an animal puppet like Animal, the drummer from the Muppets. Fisher Price made an amazing puppet uh, when we were little that not only had a working mouth but also a, an eye blink mechanism, and I carried it around from like age two or three. It was like my security blanket, and so I, I I played with that growing up. And then eventually, when it was time to try and pick a career, I was like, I'd love to do that, but there's only a handful of people who do that professionally and there's no way I could make a living off it so I originally went to become a scientist my other one of my other loves I, I studied marine biology and uh, after a couple of years of chemistry classes realized I didn't want want to wind up in a lab counting specimens in a petri dish every day
1: not that there's anything wrong with that
2: no I I, I, I love science admirable. and I've yeah it's amazing <laughs> uh, just that element of it wasn't enticing to me yeah. and uh, my brother, who's great at seeing the forest of the trees where I am not was like, well, why don't you go to my school that I'm currently going to, where you can create a major and you could probably create a, an actual puppetry degree. And I did, I, I created that. And then like Mike, I went to this puppetry conference in Connecticut, took master classes from some of the greats in the industry and made great connections, which led to auditions and just, you know, kind of chased it down, volunteered for a while and apprenticed more or less.
0: Do you guys both had um, performing as part of your backgrounds? Is that pretty common within the puppetry industry? Is there usually an element of that for people who actually end up actually producing puppets as well?
3: I feel like more recently, um, most of the puppeteers we're working with now are a combination of puppet builders and performers. There's a handful, I'd say more that than the other way where someone is just a performer, Um, at least in my mind, because you to really get into the industry, you kind of have to be multifaceted and be like, oh, I can build that for you and I can show you how it works. And then, then when you're showing a client how it works, they're like, oh, that looks great. Can we just hire you to do it? Uh, I think that's a, a really a realization, um, that, that lots of puppeteers go through as they're trying to become a puppeteer. that being be said, there are plenty of puppet performers out there that are not puppet builders that are just amazing performers and have focused so much on the, the craft and the art of creating characters and, and and taking this technical art form of puppetry and using it to develop a character out of your hand, pretty much, or something similar.
2: It, it really is one of the more comprehensive art forms uh, because you do need to be on perform and fabricate. I mean, even within being a puppet builder, you need to often know how to design, how to draw, how to sew, how to carve, how to sculpt, how to paint. Uh, I mean, every almost every step of the way as a puppeteer you need to know those items to make even just a puppet um and then as a performer you need to know how to dance how to often sing and create voices and create character puppets are used in so many various ways it's not like you know i'm going to be a broadway dancer or i'm going to learn how to sing and dance you know or something you know follow a, a typical channel this the, the puppetry world is so broad yeah lots of
3: people don't realize that when someone's puppeteering that they're acting it's not People think, oh, he's he's just a puppeteer, especially when Mike's doing puppetry. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. He's a puppeteer. Yeah. Oh. Uh. But they don't think of it as someone actually acting for some reason.
1: Yeah. Until we, um, you know, we we had watched some of uh, some of your videos and media, you know, leading up, doing some research, and and until you said that, like it it clicked. I, I actually caught note of that. I'm like, yeah, man. And then that's when I started saying, like, wow, like when you guys described how much you're fabricating, how much you're engineering, how much you're mechanically building. And then you're doing the performance and the manipulation. Like my head was spinning and I was like, man, there's going to be so much to talk to or talk about. Is there a way that you refined each craft separately? Did you like say, Hey, all right. So this year I'm really going to bone up on acting or, or the performance part of it.
3: I would say we have, we have different balances when it comes to performance and, and fabrication. I definitely would say I'm more like 60, 40, where 60% is fabrication design, 40% is performance, and probably the opposite for Mark. Probably sometimes it fluctuates within that. But when it comes to fabrication, I'm often watching YouTube videos to see how someone else did something or learning visually um, by trying to make something myself out of cardboard before I make it in reality. And then performance-wise, more recently, I'm just trying to stretch myself in auditions or uh, projects that I take on So that it's something either slightly outside of my comfort zone or something that I know I can do, but I can add another layer onto it so that I can challenge myself. Because having been puppeteering professionally since 2001, you do start to get comfortable in the things that you do and try and do more and more. And then the things that you're not so comfortable at, you kind of start to forget about. But it's those kind of things that I try and try and not let myself forget about so that so that I can at least diversify my skills as much as
2: possible. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And one of the things we've learned too, as business owners is how to put together a good team. So there are certain puppetry styles, like from the performance end, that we aren't as strong in like marionettes. We both played with them some, but we don't have the training or the experience. Um, so if there's a marionette project, although we'll, you know, try our hand at it, we'll often bring somebody in with more experience. And similarly with building, if we're working on projects, we're like, Oh, this person's an excellent painter. We'll hand this off to them to paint it at the end. Or this person's a great sculptor. Uh, Michelle, our lead fabricator, is an amazing sculptor. Uh, we had her sculpt a a baby macaw one time out of clay, and it's just, in fact, yeah, that's that ugly duckling sitting over there. That's not a reflection <laughs> on her skill; it's a reflection on <laughs> what nature has wrought upon this world. Oh boy, that's, awesome. um, that's great. But she's she's incredible. So we, you know, we, uh, while we are both good sculptors. We know Michelle's even better. So it's like, oh, you do this. You're going to make it even better. So we try and learn learn all the way along.
1: And so that, that breakdown, we get to Monkey Boy's production. That has its own origin story because clearly you guys balance each other really, really, really well. How did this come about?
2: So uh, originally, I guess it goes back to my college. Originally, there were four of us, uh, four Monkey Boys. Um, Michael, myself, Russell Tucker, and Scott Hitz. Uh, I met Russell in college working on a puppet show uh, that he helped to write uh, with the creator of the Mortified podcast, actually. He was one of the writers on it. We met there. I moved to New York, wound up living with Scott because Scott was looking to move to New York, and I met him through the puppetry community. Russ was looking to move to New York. We were like, you join in the, the group, too. We moved to Brooklyn. And while we were in Brooklyn, we worked on a show up in Connecticut where we met Mike. And all got to know each other and hit it off. And Mike was like, I'm thinking about moving to New York. So... He moved in, and the four of us rented an apartment. And uh, somebody was reading Vonnegut's "Welcome to the Monkey House" at the time, and somebody wrote that on our dry erase board. And our apartment became known as the Monkey House, and we became known as the Monkey Boys. So a couple of years later, when we started the company, it was just natural that we would call it Monkey Boys Productions. Nice, That's great, nice. Yeah,
3: there are already other groups of puppeteers and, and director friends and stuff like that. That because we are all working together so much. Um, They would be like, oh, call the monkey boys or hire the monkey boys. So it was so, so set in stone already that if we were ever going to start a company, that it would be monkey boys productions. We also started it because, you know, that was, uh, when was it, 2001? That we started the company? No, we, we didn't start no, the company until we got up the road in 2006. Sorry, 2006. I'm combining <laughs> combining <laughs> when I started puppetry and when I started the, com- the company. We
2: started to move to New York in two thousand or down no, to Brooklyn six. when we were all started living together yeah. in two thousand. So
3: we started the company in 2006. And um, the reason we started it was to make work for ourselves pretty much. Nice.
1: And then so you, you guys get to Philly here?
3: Yeah. So outside I grew Philly. up I grew up right outside Philly in the suburbs north of Philly. Um and pretty much came back to the area because after, after touring a bunch as a puppeteer, um, my wife and I chose Philly because I had family here and her family was kind of all over the place, and she liked the idea of being close to family because it's not yeah. something she grew up with. Um, and while when we started the company, we started it in a friend in uh, Scott's in-law's basement, <laughs> technically. Um, we had a short stint in an actual apartment Slash workshop in Manville, New Jersey. Um, that was Manville. maybe, yeah, that was maybe like a six month lease or something like that. Yeah. I was wondering
1: who was going to mention yeah. Manville. <laughs>
3: um, and then we realized that we actually needed a real st- workshop. And actually, finding a this style of rental space that we need is pretty interesting because it's, I guess, it's technically considered flex space, but really all we need is a temperature controlled warehouse room. Um, because we provide all our own tools and tables and sometimes walls. Uh, so we found this great industrial building in Bucks County called Grundy Commons that, uh, that is technically the oldest building in in Bucks County, I think. It was built, I don't know, do you remember when? 19- wow. It
2: was like... 18, 16s something. or sixteen or seventeen oh, hundreds. Yeah. It's like really early. It's right it like a, old a sheep now, like a wool processing plant or something weird. It seems yeah. like that should be
0: somewhere that M Night Shyamalan films a movie, right? Uh, yeah, you know? yeah. I
3: mean, I guess if they didn't rebuild it, it's probably ten times over. Oh yeah. Um, unfortunately, other than the, this structure itself, it's probably mostly you know only twenty or thirty years old. Got it. Mm. Um, so we were there for. Here at that workshop which is about 2000 square feet for about 6 6 or 7 years and then then we moved to the space we have now which is about 3000 square feet and we've been here for almost 4 years.
1: And 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 it's going well because I mean like I guess to a layman you'd be like you got to be in New York you got to be in New York which you guys were. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like things are going well here in suburbs of Philadelphia.
3: Yeah. Also. it's um it's really great because the overhead can be lower. We're not mm-hmm. in a we're, while we're in the major hub of Philly. Uh, We're outside of Philly in the suburbs so that we're not paying Philly rent, although we have plenty of friends that have studio spaces in the city that are fairly affordable. um, We're not paying New York rent pretty much. We we have friends that that have a hard time affording their studio space in New York because it's New
2: York rent and we get it Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why we're here. but we're still close enough where we can, you know, drive up to New York in less than two hours sure. as long as traffic is yeah. insane.
3: Yeah. Right. We'll we'll be up there. We'll be working up there and people will be, oh, where's your workshop? We'll be like, oh, just north of Philly. They're like, oh, really? That must be a drive. And we're like, yeah, it's about an hour and 45. You know, it's not. They're like, oh, it took me an hour and 15 to get here today. And in hindsight, <laughs> right. they're coming from either Staten Island or even Brooklyn. Like yeah. sometimes, yeah. no matter what, getting into Manhattan is a pain. So yeah, that, that extra half hour is not that big a deal.
0: So, the space we're in right now, you guys just took us on a t- on a tour, really, really awesome stuff. Um, I have never been in a place like this before. It's such a a variety of of machinery, equipment, art materials. There were several bins of different colors of fur. Mm-hmm. There's foams, there's past projects. It's totally awesome. So speaking of all of the different projects that we saw, can you guys tell us about some of your favorite ones and sort of how they came about and um, give us some insights there? Sure.
3: So early on, we were lucky enough to build a set of puppets for the show Little Shop of Horrors. And that's always been a big love of both of ours because we've worked on it a bunch. We've wow. littor-
2: literally performed the show a thousand times a piece, at least. Yeah.
3: And we would do it again tomorrow, Yeah, which is the great thing about the show Little Shop. Um, but we built a set of puppets early on in the in our company, um, and it's been the the reason we've been able to stay open, honestly, through the depression. Not the depression. What are they <laughs> called? It, it? Recession? Recession.
1: Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> through the recession. I mean, a puppet industry yeah. <laughs> depression, maybe. I don't
3: know.
2: <laughs> so... Uh, that's all through the generosity of Martin Robinson, who uh, designed and built the original puppets for Little Shop of Horrors off-Broadway in the 80s. And then on the 03 revival, he headed the, the build and design for that as well. Um, you probably know him from he plays Snuffleupagus on Sesame Street and Telemonster and Slimy the Worm. Um, I love that guy. <laughs> he's really a wonderful human being. Um, is he
1: still active?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. He still works on Sesame. He still designs new shows. Uh, he's, he's been in a ton of stuff. Look up his IMDB or his Muppet Wiki. It's just a, an incredibly long list of amazing stuff. So we worked with him. I performed on the Broadway revival with him and then Michael and I worked on the tour together with him and got to know him and became friends. Actually, we, we knew him before then, but after we got off tour, he was unhappy with some of the, the, rental sets that are out there. I was like, boy, I wish there was a nicer set. And we were like, well, let's make one together. We're, you know, we build two, we'd love to build a set. And he's like, well, why don't you take my designs and go make a set for yourself? Super gracious, super generous. Um, and like Mike was saying, that's helped to kind of create a good baseline for us as a company where we didn't have to go in the red, even when there were a lot of dry times early on where we were not paying ourselves, uh, we were just paying ourselves when projects would come in we had at least that fallback of like all right most of the rent or some of the rent can be taken care and, of
1: and to sort of frame up what kind of like token of goodwill that was what would that have cost you guys to have started from zero without the original plans
2: well it's 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 hard to really put a true price on that it would have been a lot of design time whilst creating our own aesthetic yeah Um, it would have been more more
3: upfront time on our end like he pretty much gave us an instructional booklet of how they were made in the past right and we altered it a lot but um but it was probably at least like two or three weeks of work that that he handed to us pretty much and some maquettes and we ended up 3d scanning some of the maquettes which are like small model versions of
2: the puppets um and using them in a digital world and having his ble- blessing on all of this is priceless. I mean, yeah, right. we can go around and say, hey, you know, the guy who designed these yeah. likes our work.
1: Yeah, from a marketing standpoint, yeah. just being mm-hmm. endorsed by that guy and having that authentic connection to the original show is probably really valuable.
2: Yeah, it's huge. That's yeah, right. we, we can't thank him enough. He he actually gave our company our first job. We He subcontracted us. He was building puppets for... Go uh, Diego Go Live. Yeah. Hmm. And he had us build several animal puppets for that. Yeah, he split
3: the because it was such a big job, he split it between his workshop and our workshop pretty much. So that was a that was the first job that that we pulled a crew in to help us work on. And
0: stuff. I'm fairly sure I saw that with my kids. Oh, I'm familiar yeah. with baby jaguar and et cetera. Go. Yeah. So, so it's pretty awesome. Our shop
3: made the taper, the um, Alligator. Gosh, alligator. The giraffe head. Giraffe There's was uh, butterflies. Dolphin. Dolphin. Yeah, it was a it was a good
0: group of things.
3: Toucan. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So listeners, unfortunately, you can't see where we are right now because I'm staring at above Michael's head a whole row of Star Wars puppets. We've got Greedo. We've got Jawas. We've got uh, Obi Wan Kenobi all kinds of stuff. So I you guys mentioned that project to us a little earlier. Could you talk about that one? Because it's very different from well, the others. Won.
1: It's, this is a it's an award-winning project. Yeah. yeah award-winning Lucasfilm uh, Fan Film Award. Which Best is comedy. pretty prestigious right now. That it's thing has crazy, exploded yeah. over the past few years where I've admittedly lost about half a day's of work <laughs> just going through the categories <laughs> and, and being like, man, I mean, just, but anyway.
3: Yeah. So we're we're lucky enough to have an associate artist and director kevin kelly that creates a lot of work that that we
2: work on him with or, yes creates he's,
3: a lot of work that we work with him <laughs>
2: on he's a brilliant writer and animator Creative michael mind. actually discovered him online through craigslist he kevin had posted a uh, an ad saying hey i'm looking for help with building Puppetry. puppets and, and yeah. puppeteers and whatnot
3: and i have i have one of those google alerts that like puppets needed or puppeteer needed or something like that in the philly area and it popped up and like while i probably respond to like half a percent of them that actually pop up this is one that caught my eye and then he he showed us well either way we'll get to the project we worked with him in the, uh, the other projects we worked with him, but the Ben in the desert project, the star Wars project, um, he came up with the idea a while ago and it's pretty much, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's life on Tatooine in between episodes three and episodes four. It's got some, uh, dirty language in it. So it's, you know, an, for older kids and adults. I like it. Um, but, uh, but it's NSFW.
1: Yeah. NSFW. Yeah. Those are the best kinds of Star yeah. Wars
3: films. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> But it's pretty much uh, Obi Wan, you know, being frustrated of babysitting uh, Luke Skywalker from afar, and also yelling at Jawas to get off his lawn all the time. Um, it's a lot of fun to do. I love and it. It's it's one of those projects that every time we have a free second, I'm like, we need to we need to finish editing so and so, and we need to shoot another one, like because we have two scripts or something that we can shoot
2: yeah. that we haven't shot yet. We were lucky; we got a lot of great puppeteers to jump in and work on that, including Scott. Scott hits came back down. Uh, Maggie Lakers, uh, Rob McClure, um, uh, H- H- uh, oh, Haley, Haley Jenkins. Jenkins, a lot of fantastic people. Yeah.
1: And, and so that's uh, how long of a production schedule is that? We probably shot three. They're very quick
3: episodes, like two minute episodes or something yeah. like that. And I think we shot three or four of them probably in like three or four nights of work. We would shoot here in our workshop up against a rear projection screen
0: probably about, each shoot was probably about four hours or something like that. So I think even more recently than that, and correct me where I'm wrong here, guys, you became best friends with Kanye and Little
2: Pump. (laughs) Am I overstating that at all? If Uh, you ask the crew at SNL, they'll tell you we're going on tour with them.
0: Yeah. Nice. Can you guys tell us about that Saturday Night Live project? Because this one's one's pretty amazing.
3: Yeah, this was very recently that we got hired by the SNL costumes team to make uh, a Perrier bottle and a Fiji water bottle costume for the first episode of SNL this season, um, with, uh, Adam driver hosting and Kanye as a musical guest. I'm like, okay, all right. Um, and the thing was, is that they needed to be done pretty, they needed to be done a little faster than the normal timeline, which I'm sure we'll get to talk to about what the timeline's like after this. Um, but honestly it was, it was all good. Kanye was very kind and he was just an, a nice guy and he loved the costumes so that probably helped and he was acting kind of goofy showing them off to his kids and you know it was all good I didn't I don't have anything bad to say about my personal interaction with Kanye or Lil Pump Lil Pump was very subdued uh, huh. <laughs> due due to the aroma coming off of him huh. I'm sure
0: huh. um I think I understand
3: It was probably yeah. Ben gay he was sorry yeah. So yeah I don't yeah, think that's, that's, that's what they saying. That's exactly saying. Fatigued, that's exactly he was what I
1: he, but he was he he was also just cool, you know, yeah. laid very laid back, extremely laid back. Everybody now were you guys you present for like a fitting or just there to kind of exactly, last looks yeah. kind of thing?
3: Because we built the costumes and didn't cut any holes in them yet, mm. because we wanted to make sure they were in the right spot. So uh, so we would cut the head hole first, and then have them try it on, and be like, I think we're going to put the armholes here. Does that work with you? And then we cut the armholes, and they try it on again, and we make them a little bigger or position them a little higher or something.
2: We also had to add final detailing. And we're very lucky. Um, the SNL, all of SNL is super collaborative because it's so fast. There's no time for egos and much bureaucracy. So uh, their uh, graphics department printed up labels for us and some detailing for the, the caps. So um,
3: because of the, the time crunch that they always have, uh, we were able to just focus on making these simple bottle shapes and painting them just to look like the base colors. And then we were able to use these adhesive stickers that they printed to put on to, to give all the details which saved, saved a lot of time for us here because for us to have to paint them here and then clear coat yeah. everything would have added a good amount of time so,
1: and that's really cool so how how does that project come in to you guys
3: yeah so um the way we got hooked up with snl is actually through our little shop puppets um and m- most of our jobs, not all, but most of our jobs do come to us through word of mouth or friend who knows friend. We both have worked in the industry long enough to make a lot of friends, luckily. Um, and, and people, um, people continue to recommend us and know what we can do and, and recommend us for different things. So, uh, in season 40, right, uh, there was a sketch written, there was a little Shop parody sketch written by Bobby Moynihan and they were looking for little Shop puppets to rent for the sketch. And Bobby Moynihan's wife had worked with our friend Rob McClure and Rob suggested us because we had the little shop puppets. So luckily our little
2: shop puppets were available. They had just come in the day before. Yeah, literally the day before we got the call. They got back from a rental. So yeah. this
1: is Creative HAL and we always we'll get to, to it later. We'll talk about the the top three or four things you do to start on this career path I'm yeah. thinking number one is make a little shop set of puppets <laughs> yeah. no it brains. Like it's, no yeah. it's super easy it's to like, do yeah, I mean will... anybody can do it it's really cheap it doesn't take much, yeah. much. easy hard yeah. you gotta do it just yeah, yeah. figure it out number
2: one it opens every door yeah <laughs> so We're SNL sees these so we,
3: yeah we rent them to SNL
2: yeah, and then while we were up there, uh, the head of props um, was asking us like, "Hey, can you you made these yourselves? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you make X? Can you make Y?" And we're like, "Sure, yeah, we'll we'll be honest
1: with you." If we Even can. if you couldn't, would you have been no, like, "Nah"? We we were, no, we were, we were like, "Yeah, of yeah we'll yeses. figure it out later." There were lots yeah. of yeses,
3: but we are also honest. We we're like, "We'll tell you if we can't, but yes."
2: Because that's not, it's not the type of place, especially in a word of mouth industry like this. You True. don't want to overpromise and then not deliver, because yep. that's a major slam of the door. Mm-hmm. We'll say yeah. We we haven't made this. We'll give it a try, or we can't make this, or whatever. And um, but that led to us building random a couple of random small things for them. Uh, Mike made a set of Venetian blind glasses. Uh, we made a, a turkey for them. Um, that wound up getting cut. Just uh, didn't look quite right size wise for them. And then. The next season is when we finally got something on air. We made a set of files. I don't know if you remember when Trump said he divested himself of his companies and brought out those brand new fold folders full of reams of paper that obviously no human had ever touched. Uh, And so the joke of it was that, uh, the spokesperson could lift it like it was nothing. Uh, so it was actually harder to put together than we initially thought. There isn't enough time to, say, make a, a fake stack of papers and paint it to look realist. So instead we made real stacks of paper, which we then uh, glued and stapled together and then cut out from the inside. So the whole thing was hollow. That led to the next week we made a pizza guitar. Uh, Mike found this amazing electric guitar and then we modified it, added foam to give this triangular shape and uh, our team did incredible work painting it and adding foam to make it look like real crust and whatnot and and pepperoni cool thing was it also had to spin a la zz top Uh, so we have great videos on i think are they on our website of you spinning the guitar i think so they love that the week after that they brought in melissa mccarthy to play sean spicer and that's when we really kind of gained a lot of traction there
1: that one popped yeah Yeah. we're watching you guys down in baltimore on newscasts on this stuff it was crazy yeah Yeah,
2: it's so surreal because you know uh, the first one they just called them were like hey they we, we need a version of the white house podium that can be picked up and you know used to smack people around that isn't going to be heavy or hurt people so we cranked it out out of foam brought it up delivered it uh they were like you know don't say anything about it until after the show's aired and after aired we you know put a little pose like hey so happy to be a part of the team here went to bed next morning we wake up. And like you said, it's on CNN and in the New York times. And, and I mean, that's a tribute to the writers. Uh, I think it was Ken Sublette and Colin Jost came up with that. I'm not sure who else, um, you know, to come up with that idea. And then Melissa McCarthy is just a genius comedically and with props. Yeah. Uh, there's certain people you see who can pick up a prop and and actually use, use it to its fullest. Some actors just for whatever reason, can't, they can be, they can be great actors, but, um, Melissa McCarthy just excels, and they, they, they turned that into something awesome. So we were happy to be a little, a little part of the team on that.
1: So they came to you with the vision. They had written the sketch. Do you guys get a storyboard with it?
3: Do they storyboard? We don't get storyboards from SNL. Uh, the, the rundown is usually so Wednesday nights. Usually around 10 p.m., we'll get a call from the head of the props department and say, all right, we need this, we need that, we need this. And they'll often come with a little idea, you know, a seed of an idea of how it could be made. Specifically with that, they, um, they said, so the writers want uh, just, oh, well, this, we're just on the phone podiums. But uh, to jump ahead the, to the mobile podium, which we made the next week, um, the writers want a podium on a segue. But we're not, to,
2: we're not so sure about how stable a Segway will be with a podium on top of it. And not to mention it's a small studio. And, you know, Segways move fast and they're large things. You you start somebody cranking on one of those, you're going to hurt them or the audience or just run them into a wall.
3: Yeah. So he said maybe not a Segway, maybe like a, a little wheelchair
2: or something. They, like yeah, so, they had like had the, the same idea. We were thankfully so often with all of this, they're on the same page already where we they either make the same suggestion we already were thinking, or vice versa. Um,
3: so we get those ideas from them, and then we hit the ground running. Pretty much Thursday morning, we call our crew. We bump up our crew if we need to, and then so Thursday morning with the eye to deliver when this the mobile podium. I think didn't need to be there till Saturday morning, s- Friday night or Saturday morning. Wait, a yeah, maybe we're maybe will- talking about the same week. Yes. 48 hours. Yeah. Sometimes. So if we're lucky, if we're lucky, we'll get a phone call Wednesday night and they won't need it till Saturday at noon. That's usually the longest amount of time we have. Wow. Um, But more, more often than not, it's call Wednesday night and they need it Friday night Um, just to, because they always, they really want to rehearse as much as possible Mm -hmm. with these things because most of the things that we're making are somewhat integral in the sketch. Um, we'll often get, so we'll get the, the idea from the head of props, Larry, and then he'll also send us the script, which, uh, often is change, changes a lot. So we'll get to double check. We'll read the script and make sure like, oh, it seems like it needs to do this though. And then we'll check in with him to see if we need to alter or, or change something or make sure it has a certain aspect or
0: something like that.
3: Do
2: it's, they
0: give you a budget or is there any, any talk of that type of
2: thing? There, there is. It's, um... With big ticket items like that, especially, they're very like, you know, we got to be careful about this and that. Um, But because it's so fast, generally speaking, it's just get this done. And then we give them, you know, basically it works out to everybody's benefit. We give them the true cost so they they're getting what they're paying for. And we're not taking a hit by trying to, you know, underbid or anything.
3: Um, We We have a pretty good system set in place. From being around for now 12 years that, you know, employees clock in the certain jobs and, you know, we track time and all of that fun business Mm -hmm. owner management stuff. So we pretty much... keep track of time, keep track of purchases. And then after all said and done, you know, we we rest on Sunday and then Monday morning we hit the ground doing accounting
1: mm-hmm. just
3: to make sure that the price is right. You know, we put all the numbers into the calculator
2: and it spits out a price.
1: So does so this, does this workshop then become a 24 hour yes. like fire drill? It, it has yeah.
2: the, when we made the, the second motorized podium, the outdoor one that she wrote around like 57th street. Yeah. <laughs> um, we got the call Wednesday night.
1: Was that practice or was that for actual filming and just the part of the
2: gag? Oh, she she, she had some practice runs, but then it was all shot um, live. Guys, it's uh, ironically Wednesday today. Yeah. Right
0: now. It is. We are at the ground zero of a new project for SNL. Possibly. it's always the thing. Take us through.
3: We don't know till tonight
0: at like <laughs> 10-ish PM. What wow. happens then? Like just. It's 48 hours. Yeah.
2: You get this feeling in your stomach, kind of like Christmas, um, but you've also forgotten everything you need to do for Christmas. So it's super exciting and super scary and super thrilling and a lot of fun. So we get a call at, you know, like Mike said, like 10 or so. And they're like, we need X, Y, and Z, or we have nothing for you this week. It it totally depends on the writers. Then we brainstorm a little with them. They'll send any reference images they have. And like uh, Mike had talked about earlier, we hit the ground running on Thursday and try and brainstorm the night before with our lead fabricator, Michelle about what our battle plan will be. So we can get in, get people shopping get people, you know, sculpting or whatever the initial steps are and then work till whatever time in the morning, maybe get some sleep depending on what the projects do. Cause like there have
3: even been projects that are due Friday morning. Yeah. Which mm. is what happened with the, the second mobile podium, the one, the one that you saw on the street. That was due Friday morning because it was called a pre-tape. So they video pre videotaped it and we had to have it there on set
2: in New York. A videotape is a medium that we used to use back when there were blockbusters. (laughs) Um, So that that night, basically Thursday morning, Mike and I got up, went down to Philly, found a used uh, bariatric wheelchair, electric wheelchair that could hold a 600 pound person because this needed to hold a sturdier amount and
3: be more Originally, road
2: ready, where the other one yeah. we made was specifically for the studio for smoother ground and yeah. stuff. Yeah, Worked with our team. Uh, we have a, a great guy named Tim Mertz who works with us sometimes, who's a steel worker, who does a lot of welding and, and other craft work. He's an amazing artist. He took parts off, went and welded them. Mike and Michelle w- worked on making the wooden frame. Then we all worked on painting and assembly. Originally, they wanted the thing in New York at four in the morning. We got them to push it till six. So... We worked till two in the morning, loaded it in a van. Mike and I drove up there. We worked till I'm four sorry, in the morning. Sorry, we worked till four in the morning, drove it up there, get there at six, did the typical TV, hurry up and wait until 8 p.m. Then actually started a. shooting. 8 a.m. Yeah. 8 a.m. I'm sorry, boy. <laughs> I'm a little tired this week, too.
1: That's OK. I mean, like if, for those of you that are listening, there's no other way to access this. Um, <laughs> we are literally in their workshop. So you're hearing a lot of ambient noise because this is a we're They're taking valuable time out of their day minutes away from learning about their next project possibly. Um, so there's activity all over the place and we think it's a super cool. So we're going to we're going to post shiz, you know pictures in the show notes. Check out the uh, you know uh, Instagram and things like that because we we went a little more in depth with our, our documentation on this one.
0: Yeah, don't give us all kinds of shit for all the ambient noise. We already know it's there. <laughs> yeah,
1: dude. but one one we thing I have wanted to, to prove or <laughs> pro by this point. Yeah,
0: exactly. One thing I wanted to say to you guys was you both seem incredibly calm. And <laughs> I didn't realize when we came in that literally it's like any Wednesday could come and, and they could call. And I know you have a million other projects you're working on, but I, I feel like, I'll be honest, sometimes when we get projects or I get projects as a creative and there's very little time, it doesn't make me happy. But you guys seem cool with it. It's it's just part of the job, I guess. Like there,
3: There's not a whole lot we can do about adding time to a job. We're just as honest as we can be with each other and our employees and the client. Um, This is a dream client, though
1: it is. So, like, you make it work, right? Like this, it doesn't get bigger than this, except maybe a movie studio. But these guys are their own studio, so it's like, yeah,
2: we are are so lucky to be a part of this. I know that. It's an opportunity. They say luck is the combination of opportunity
3: and talent. So, like, we we do feel lucky to have been provided this opportunity and to have the talent to to be able to to, sustain it, it, right? Yeah. Yeah because
2: it's insane it's not something like you can truly fully prepare yourself for it's not like you can go learn how to make props on a fast budget and time budget um we just happen to have a, a collection of skills and have fantastic fabricators that work with us that have certain skills that allow us to do this in you know 24 to 48 hours um but to your point Chad, it is we may look calm on the outside but if you're here you know in 12 hours from now or 24 hours from now, we probably won't be as calm uh, just because there's always the chance things will change even within that time frame or they'll add stuff. And there are, you know, the inevitable hiccups that you can't prepare for like, hey, the delivery person didn't get there in time or we ran into traffic or the thing we were making collapsed on itself. You know, whatever unknown can Mm -hmm. pop up and then you crank it up from 10 to 11.
1: Are are you guys, so that's a good question because in what we do, a lot of what you're talking about we lean on one person and that is this kick-ass producer that we both work with. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but that's in pretty much any, any sort of creative field when you're trying to do a production, um, there's a lead producer. Do you got, are you guys the producers or you, do you have someone that's, that's kind of running the air traffic control and all that stuff in the shop?
3: Yeah. I mean, we're, do we care? Uh, it stopped. Uh, In the shop, yeah, we're the go-tos for questions. Michelle is also, you know, has the authority to answer all the questions that would be asked of us as well. But she often wants to double check with us. Because we're growing, we're trying to find more ways to filter questions that come to us so that people can be more self-sustaining and, you know, can handle some decisions on their own. But, you know, especially with the SNL work, we're there, we're the... We're the lead designers in the sense um, for the project because it's, you know, they're our top
0: client. We're going to, we need to make sure that they're as happy as can be. I think uh, one of the things you guys have touched on a few times without us asking is your team. And you've also talked about learning um, how to run a business over the course of the last several years. And how do you look at structuring structuring your team? And can you talk about day to day running the production of, of all the characters you make?
2: It's something we're still learning and and growing with. We're both, both creatives. Yeah, we we don't have our business knowledge and skill has come through life and through you know mistakes. My my mom likes to say we purchased our our our, our masters. In, yeah, and, our, our business degrees in mistakes because we've we've made horrible. Mistakes and contracts and decisions and whatnot, and it's cost us as a company. But
1: usually, in trusting
2: people outside too. of the company. Yeah, we we
1: living in New York should have just taken care of that. <laughs> yeah, Perhaps it has you, for me. You would think. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I, I trust I'll, trust I'll, zero people. I'll start on this project <laughs> with no money. Yeah, yeah. That's I don't a, need. Seems really. like a good yeah. business decision. Yeah. I
3: don't yeah. need the final <laughs> payment to deliver this. No. No.
2: <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, but. You know, so now now we we're, we're still at that at that teetering point where we're not big enough to be able to hire, say, a, a full time production manager or administrator. Mm-hmm. Um, or bookkeeper we, or marketing person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <I laughs> There's mean, a lot of positions we don't have full time. Things we'd like to have, but unfortunately at our size are not viable yet. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, you know, hopefully so we,
3: we keep growing. Yeah, we share between the two of us, we're sharing all of the bookkeeping, accounting, project management, front design, face, marketing, front face all marketing, all of that. Um, you know, we we do our own, you know, QuickBooks AdWord or Google uh, Google AdWords campaigns and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Instagram accounts, uh, all the more modern marketing tools and, and everything like that. So day to day, it's. It's probably us doing a lot of pipeline work, which means, you know, emailing future clients and current clients and talking with them about designs and schedules. And then also making sure that the fabricators um, know what they're supposed to be working on, get the input they need from us to continue working on it, um, making sure that that we can voice our opinions about uh about the, the, the structure of, of each project and how it's physically built so that it's not made a way that we don't think will work. And so that it, you know, they do things the way that we want them to be done. It's, it's a lot of that.
1: Have people like re- relocated to be part of your team? Like, I mean, how, how do you, I feel like this is specialized work, but it's also, you know, uh, trades, tradesmen's type, type work, puppetry being pretty specific. How have you, has it been trouble finding the talent that you guys require in Philly?
2: It's tricky because it's such niche work um, and it's so comprehensive. You need to find people who have more than just, you know, one skill set. I mean, we've had very talented people apply that are, say, great painters or great carpenters or great stitchers. And we can bring people in like that for certain projects at certain times. But we obviously look for people with a a broader spectrum. So that's Michelle had been working, uh, I think, at the Moravian Tile Works. Uh, before she came to work for us. And uh, thankfully, it it was at the right time when we started to grow and had enough work where we could keep her in pretty consistently. Um, Because that's the other thing in this industry. It's so up and down with how much work you have. It's hard to maintain a real quality workforce because people got to eat. I mean, we ourselves only it's been maybe two or three years that we've actually had full years where we weren't laying ourselves off most of the time. Um, So it's it's tricky. We're, we're learning and trying to move forward.
3: Yeah. We've been lucky enough to be able to bring on a, a business consultant pretty much to help us. Actually, at least we've been using QuickBooks for most of the history of our company. So we have some history of our financials and stuff like that. Um, so luckily we've had someone come in and actually look at them from a actual business standpoint. And and things have been good, which is, you know, our, I think our biggest worry was we're going to hire this person to come in and check its stuff. But... It's going to be crazy. And she's going to be like, what a, I don't know what you've been doing. But yeah. luckily, it, she's like,
1: oh, you guys actually kind of know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, least. that's good. I mean, yeah. I'm sure what you guys want to be focusing on is the creative part exactly. of this thing. So yeah. it's like keeping kicking the can down the road a little bit, but keeping your eye on that. Eventually, you guys can be the big thinkers and you can offload some of that process stuff. So yeah, that's the that's hope. really awesome. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that is a killer origin story. I mean, I, th- I think we could go all day on that, but I think what we want to do for our audience at least is deliver on the show promise, which is creative how, right? So as we kind of explain it, uh, what are the first three or four things our audience members can turn off this podcast and feel like, all right, these are the steps I'm going to take. Cause I'm on my road to becoming a puppeteer or a fabricator. So like as actionable and as, as minutia as you want to be, or as broad as thinking, but like, Again, center on the action, and if you put yourself in their shoes, they have no sort of context or or familiarity with with what you do. How can they get that ball rolling?
3: uh I'll start with fabrication just from a from a fabricator standpoint. I mean, if you're one of those people that play, I was that grew up taking apart their transformers and stuff like that, that's a great start i mean if you're if you're not afraid of destroying something to see how it works, that's always gonna be helpful um and then then I say, you know. If you can, go to art school and find an art school that's going to give you as diverse of an experience as possible. Um, The art school I went to, to, uh, Tyler School of Art, was really great at that. You know, you don't declare a major until your end of your sophomore year. So your freshman and sophomore year is spent trying out different sections of the school, whether it's sculpture or jewelry or glass blowing or fibers or uh, printmaking or um, a graphic design. So you get to try all these different sides of the art world in, in a sense, which was really great for me because um, it helped me focus towards understanding what I wanted to do. And then once I found puppetry, I was lucky enough to, you know, like I said, find people that had the skills to learn from. But nowadays you don't have to find people as much anymore. While well, I recommend it, you can just hop online and type in how to build a puppet. And there's some awesome websites specifically for puppet building and Muppet style that you can buy patterns off of that have amazing details one's called project puppet you can you can spend i think 20 bucks for a very simple pattern and it's got and it's designed so well for anyone to just print them out cut them out and make yourself a, a nice little fleece felt puppet kind it's of a worth thing.
2: every penny yeah. go to that website
3: um uh and then outside of that you also have what the stan winston school of character arts now that has hundreds of Instructional videos on how to they do all their special effects stuff, whether it's from foam work to prosthetics to uh, mold making and casting and flocking and hair work and all this crazy amount of things that you see in all the major films and stuff like that.
1: Are we are we back? Are seeing a resurgence in practical effects? I feel like we are. I feel like we're seeing more
2: of a balance. Yeah, there's an equilibrium that's been reached. What
1: was what would do you guys point to as the breaking point for digital?
2: Episode seven. The newest Star Wars, the um, th- n- oh no, sorry. that's when it's bring- coming oh. back. I'd, I'd say the breaking points were, I don't know, maybe some of those uh, Avatar, Roland. Rolling- oh well, Avatar. I thought actually used CG really well and made it look natural. But there were ones before that where everything was CG and or CGI, and like it, it just it, it 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 was to the point where you looked at it and you weren't surprised by it, you weren't amazed oh, by well, it, and there the, wasn't the breath. Episode one. Star Wars yeah, episode right. one yeah. or
3: episode two. There was so much CG. I mean, just yeah, to, the pl- city to play Star Wars and- on Star Wars. Yeah, like, like
2: Jar Jar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, that
1: Jar Jar wall. broke this. Yes. I'm happy blaming Jar <laughs> Jar. I
2: mean, when you go to a movie and you're not amazed to see something blow yeah. up or something giant walk around, mm-hmm. it's you're not it's not doing its job. Yep. And there's something about that this equilibrium equilibrium that's been reached where you'll have a practical piece of fur in front of you, like in the the more recent version of King Kong. They did a great job of having, you know, big animatronic parts. That uh, what's the actress's name? Um, Australian actress, where she could interact with it and touch it, and there was breath in it, mm-hmm. and it was alive. Uh,
3: Even then, more recently, the new Jurassic Parks. There were there practical parts uh, yeah. in those, like in in the the first one when they find the dying brachiosaur or something like that, the whole head was a practical puppet that they went up to and were able to touch, but then the rest of it, of course, was digital. It's those kind of combinations that make everything great because any time a performer or an actor needs to interact directly with a a weird character that isn't able to be used, meaning it's not like a living creature, um, it's so much better to just have something that they can touch. Um and they're doing a lot of that in the Star Wars films, making all these creative, awesome characters with servos and puppeteers. And I mean, look at BB8. He's he's a puppet. He's a he's puppeteered by a team of puppeteers in multiple different ways. And sometimes he's digital, sometimes he's practical. It's it's amazing.
1: So to your first point of the creative how, like that's actually helping like the context of practical production. Yeah. The fact that it's trending back towards that way and away from right. CGI is is now proliferating all of this content that people can access. Whereas, you know, growing up, that was just the way it did. you did it. And you also yeah. didn't have the YouTubes or whatever. But now it's it's now a craft that's now coveted at this point. Right. I think uh, producers and people started to
3: realize that they thought, oh, we're going to have to use CG for that. Oh, you can only do that in CG. But there's plenty of fabricators out there be like, that's not true. We can make this probably for the same price. And you can get more angles and more shots out of it because it's a real thing, instead of having to do it in post and CG and not seeing it on set. Um, so yeah, it's it feels really good to to feel at least like there's some sort of balance going on right now, um, which leads me to you know if you want to be a fabricator, just learn as much as you can, and then when it comes to actual projects on your own, there's a lot of different type of fabricators out there. People that are self motivated, people that are not. I know I'm. I rarely do my own projects. I love being given a project to do. Um, So figure out what kind of fabricator you are and either start one on your own that you want to do, you know, a project that you want to learn on and project that you're not worried about messing up. And if not, ask a friend what kind of costume or puppet they would want to use. Find someone that can give you an idea. Be like, I would love this thing and be like, I can do that for you. i needed some direction and that's perfect. Let's sit down and talk about it because all of that is going to help from a fabrication standpoint because it'll get you to start sketching stuff out. And when you sketch, it doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to work for your brain and how you're going to translate it into a practical thing.
0: You guys work on so many different things and also for lots of different clients. Do you feel like you have a personal aesthetic and does that play a role in what you make or is it all sort of original work based on a, a quote unquote brief? I'm not personally a, an illustrator,
3: car, like 2D line drawing artist kind of a person. So I don't feel like I have an aesthetic. Maybe my mechanisms kind of have an aesthetic. Um, but we do try really hard for our company to not lock into an aesthetic Just because we think from a marketing standpoint and a selling our company standpoint, we'd rather not be like, oh, that was definitely made by monkey boys. Because we want anyone to be able to hire us. We want to be able to do something completely goofy and soft and cartoony
0: to something extremely practical and real um, and everything in between. It's really interesting because Sean and I were talking about this on the way up today to meet with you guys. We were talking about ad agencies Mm -hmm. and there are ad agencies that have an aesthetic. Yeah. And it's odd. Because they're some of the best ones in the world, but it seems counterintuitive for the exact reason you just said. So,
2: yeah, I think with an ad agency too, like you're you're marketing to all those different companies. Like they wouldn't want to. I mean, you're always trying to be the fresh face or or have something new and eye catching. So that's intriguing.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of times. I mean, we deal with production companies all the time. You know, in the commercial filmmaking part of our business, mm-hmm. and but to Jed's point, they you know who does what really really well. So if I want, you know. A music video artsy type of production, you know, there's a there's a pool of production companies that do that really really well. If I want realistic um, computer graphic product, like say a shoe, to to feel practical, well, I know who we're going for that. Yeah. You know, so it, I don't know if they I don't think they intend to do that. They just end up work. I know in my mind as an art director, I'm going to the person that has exhibited aptitude with what I'm looking for. Versus taking a chance on the other right. guys. So it can, yeah. it's a two-way street. And they, I'm sure they're going to say no to the, not going to say no to the paycheck. So they're going to continue to get those shoe, yeah. shoe after shoe after, yeah. shoe after shoe after shoe, right? So it's a slippery, slippery slope a little yeah. bit. Right. But it's good to kind of keep that versatility. I mean, yeah. it's, it's apparent in the workshop for sure. Thanks. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. It, I mean, we we feel lucky to hire a lot of artists and fabricators that are multifaceted in their uh, designs and you know their aesthetics. Definitely, people that we hire have aesthetics. But th- that's what's the great thing. We know that if we get a if somebody calls us and asks us, hey, we want a bunch of character designs, and we have w- we can then say, all right, here are these character descriptions. We're going to give it to three different people and get designs from three different people, so that our client has a lot of choices to choose from. Because I'd rather give our client more to choose from than. And less, you know, because there's more of a chance of us getting the job yep. than It feels like.
1: All right. So fa- fabrication. Anything? Any other? Sort yeah. Of tips? So
3: I mean, do it. That's the main mm-hmm. thing. Just just fit, pick a project and do it, because that's how you're going to learn. Yep. Um If if you want to focus on one aspect of the project, find a group of people to work with. So if you only really want to focus on mechanisms or design or um, or straight fabrication and learning how to use tools, find someone to do the other the other things, which is fine. You don't have to do everything. The more you do, the easier it is to be hired. I can tell you that, at least from from our standpoint, we like to hire people that are as multifaceted and diverse in their fabrication skills as possible. But there are plenty of times when we need to hire the best seamstress out there or the best mold maker out there. Um, so there's a place for everyone in the fabrication world.
1: Is a, is a fabricator, when they're going to look for a job, is that, is that a portfolio-based um, search? you got are people submitting books of their creations to you yeah whether review
2: whether practically or digitally yeah we we definitely always try and look at uh past work just so we can so we can see what will translate because you never know i mean somebody can have never touched props or puppets but they may have good sculpting and painting skills and they can automatically translate those into uh sculpting foam or foam patterning if they've had you know uh stitching work. Yeah.
3: I've spoken a a few times to like college students about resumes and stuff like that. And the the people that bring me in probably don't want me to to talk about it the way I do, but I'm very much not a resume person. Like I don't really need to see this list of words. If anything, the only list doesn't like to read (laughs) the only list of words I want to see are the skills that you feel like you're good at. And then I want to see a bunch of pictures of what you use those skills for. Um, because that's what we do here. We pretty much Somebody will reach out to us and sometimes they go through all this trouble writing a cover letter and making this really nice resume and stuff like that, which is great. And we give it the attention that it needs. But we then just right away, if they don't send us pictures of a portfolio, we say, can you send us any pictures of your work? And can you fill out this survey, which is pretty much just a fabrication survey that, you know, rate yourself on a scale of one to ten. One being no experience, ten being expert of all these different skills that we use here. And then we take a look at that and compare it to their pictures and then talk to them basically about those two things their pictures and how they rate themselves on the different what, skills.
1: What's the number one skill that you're always looking out for? There isn't one. Yeah. It's probably a group of
3: skills, whether it's, you know, foam fabrication, sewing, painting. They're probably like and, the. And sculpting. And sculpting. They're probably the th- four, three or four that we look at the most. And then in that, we have like subcategories of each one and um, also welding and carpentry. And, you know, we kind of want everyone to, most people that come in here to have the skills of being able to use most hand tools and and floor tools so that um, we can trust that they can pick up the right screw gun or use the table saw or all of those kind of things that we don't want to worry about someone's safety unless we're literally teaching them, unless it's an apprentice coming in to learn all these things.
2: I'd like to add one other thing too, for people that are looking to get into fabrication. Uh, We both took a a master class with Jim Krupa Mm -hmm. Uh, every year up in Connecticut. They do the O'Neill puppetry conference, which we mentioned. That's the conference that we mentioned a few times before. Yeah. That's where we met. That's where we got our start. Uh, And they, one part of that is uh, Jim Krupa, who is, if not the greatest, he's one of the greatest mech builders on the planet. He built the puppets for between the lions and a, bunch of other stuff. I can't even start the list. That class is great. It starts you even if you have never had experience. Um it gives you a chance to have hands-on experience building and trying these things out from one of the masters and he's a great teacher. Um I can't recommend that enough.
1: I agree. That's great. All right. So we move from the fabrication side of of the creative how uh now to the performance side, which is really, really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Mark?
2: Sure. Um uh, like we talked a little bit about before, the uh, the performance end of puppetry is very comprehensive. We need to know how to often act, dance, sing, create voices, and, and know how to be directors too, because often you're creating your own piece. I, I was lucky enough to to grow up around some theater and, and watch people uh, develop those skills, and... I would say to anybody who's looking to become a a performing puppeteer, go out and watch classic things like old Warner Brothers cartoons or Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and watch how they control their body, even in a cartoonish way. They have very specific moves they do. And when you're working with a puppet, although you're trying to make it look human, often one of the reasons you use a puppet is because it can do superhuman things. So to that end, and along with it, I would also say watch people whenever we're preparing to perform a specific puppet. And sometimes even when we're looking to build a puppet, we go and we watch how that thing moves in real life. Like we made this 15 foot long juvenile Tyrannosaurus Rex puppet. And we did a lot of study of how birds walk and how you know videos of animated dinosaurs walk just so we could then try and replicate that in a practical way. And so as a puppeteer, I, I was lucky enough to work on a show called Madama Butterfly, an opera at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And in that, I, along with two other puppeteers, Tom Lee and Kevin Augustine, play uh, a three-year-old child that runs around on stage. And they used uh, a derivation of this ancient Japanese style called Bunraku, where three puppeteers work one puppet. So I work the head of the puppet and its left hand, Tom works the right hand and the body, and Kevin works the two feet it's I, I love that art form because it's so uh there's so much teamwork and mm-hmm. you rely so much on each other uh, and when it works it's this beautiful living thing and people totally lose sight of you even though there's you know 700 pounds of human behind this tiny little boy puppet we hopefully become invisible if we do our job right so for that we would spend a lot of time looking and watching like thinking about how, how does a toddler walk they kind of, when they're walking, they're doing more of just catching themselves and stopping themselves themselves from falling than actually walking um, and trying to figure out how they would look and how they would react to things. Um, those are essential.
1: That, if, un, that unseen part, just real quick, I think is really interesting because I think you wouldn't get into this if you're looking for the visibility slash celebrity slash notoriety, right? You're, you need to be okay with being unknown.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Puppeteers are... We have egos, but we we kind of tuck them away a little. Yeah. Um, we don't want to be out in front, uh, which is weird because, you know, at the Met, for example, that's a 4,000 seat house and you're performing live in front of 4,000 people uh, and sometimes more when they broadcast it. And that could be nerve wracking. But having, for whatever reason, having this little piece of wood and metal and whatever else in front of you, you, you it's, it's a mask. It's a way to hide and still entertain people and have fun and, and do this great thing. But it isn't as scary. Like... I can get up in front of an audience of, say, 10 people to talk about... I shouldn't say audience. If, if I have to go make a speech in front of 10 people that I don't know about, like a, a civic thing or something, I'm shaking. My voice is all over the place. But I can get in front of 4,000 people behind a puppet and feel absolutely comfortable. That's great. Which is weird. So, I mean, if that if that's what works for you, become a puppeteer. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, just keep keep studying. Find out what you love to do because, you know, in as in anything... If you have a passion for it, you can excel at it. If you love singing, study singing. If you love acting, study acting. If you love all of those things and creating voices and whatnot, then try and become a puppeteer. Try and hone all of those skills, whether it's with an actual you know trainer or just getting out and trying it on your own. Something practical you can do as a as at home puppet training is uh, working out lip sync. We tend to do a lot of TV-style puppetry, like the Muppets and whatnot, and that requires uh, figuring out how to isolate the movement of your thumb. Because when you manipulate a, the mouth of a puppet, your four fingers from index down to your pinky are on the upper head, the upper palate of the, the, the puppet, while your thumb is in the lower jaw. And if you think about how you talk as a human, only your lower jaw moves. And one of the trickiest things to do when you talk as a puppet, or you know, through a puppet, is to isolate right. just your thumb right. moving. So just practice doing practice doing that. Um, we used to practice, and we still do sometimes in the car, listen to a song you know and just try and lip sync with it. Try and get your thumb to move at exactly the same pace that your jaw moves when you're singing that song.
1: Uh Jed, uh, I hope you're ready for some uh, puppeteering of Eddie Vedder on the <laughs> ride home.
2: Uh, I'm going to be
0: driving, but I can only use one hand while I'm practicing, so it's going to be a dangerous ride. Ah. It's gonna be so
2: exciting. I hope your car is automatic. It is. It, I wish it was, but uh,
1: virtually everything. We'll see what Really annoys you. <laughs> We're gonna see. It does people a lot. This is great. This that is that's a really cool insight because it's like yeah the normal yeah most people uh, lame just, just like flapping their hands all over the place right but like this the craft of just the thought, I can't even do it man. Wow,
0: uh, one I trick. was trying I was trying to. It was actually <laughs> it shockingly is. hard, and I'm, okay. my thumb already is tired.
2: Okay, so you, you, uh, a secret to learning to isolate your thumb is roll like you're, uh, Cross your your are crossing your fingers, put your middle finger over your index finger, and put your ring finger over your pinky finger, and that it makes it a lot easier to isolate your and thumb. It kind of locks it up. So just gonna, I think they're taking a picture of it now.
1: That's right. Check the show notes, people. This is going to be awesome. Get me. Get me. Wait.
0: Sean's taking a picture of me doing it right now. Okay. This is going to seem very odd. I, I really feel like, you guys, it's shocking how many skills you guys must have and it's honestly a little bit, it's kind of amazing to me. So, this has been really unbelievable, to be honest. I don't, yeah. I can't imagine seeing somebody who's able to use all of the machinery that you have in the back room, envision the characters, perform the characters, teach other people, manage the business, market it, work with a vast array of types of businesses and all that stuff. It's been, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. And we're Thanks, glad to man. have been able Thank to. You. You guys take some time out to, you know, let us tell your story and we're happy to. It's our pleasure. You know, anything we can do for you. Um, One of the biggest things we want to do for you is promote you guys as as much as we can help. Um, So where can people find out information about you guys? Probably the best way to find
3: us is through our website, which is monkeyboysproductions.com. So that's singular monkey, plural boys and productions. And then uh, that, th- our website has links to our Facebook and our Instagram, which we we mostly post on Instagram, which then shunts into Facebook. That's what the kids like.
2: Yeah. yeah. And you can find our emails on the site as well, contact at monkeyboysproductions.com. Yeah, we
3: try to, we, you know, the emails out there, we try and reply to as many emails as possible. And sometimes it takes us a little while, depending on how crazy we are with builds and house and stuff like that. But we usually get
0: back. Don't email you on Wednesdays. <laughs> Wednesday
3: It's Thursdays and Fridays
2: You yeah. can email us whenever Just <laughs> right. don't expect an answer Right, to right, right, it, right, At least God. Monday or Tuesday Absolutely
1: Yeah Well, it's been great Thanks again, guys we're, Thank we're, you I'm um, psyched to continue to watch The progression here And obviously continue I, you're, you're the only reason I'm really watching SNL
0: <laughs> Whoa, easy <laughs> I hate to say wow. that but, Easy killer
1: uh, You know It's late for me
0: Yeah, you too <laughs> I,
3: I agree <laughs> I'm the only reason I'm watching SNL <laughs> Wow right? See,
2: the ego sneaks the out o- There's no the in here you were right
1: <laughs> All right, guys. Good luck. Thanks Thank a you. Lot. Thanks, guys. Wow, Jed, I learned a lot. Thank you to Monkey Boys for inviting us into their living, breathing workshop. This place is wall-to-wall creativity around a craft that literally doesn't seek the spotlight. In fact, they are are hidden a lot of the times, and you don't always get that recognition.
0: Yeah, this was like walking into a different world. Their studio was incredible um, and their talents are amazing. So please check out our show notes at creativehowpodcast.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Creative
1: Hey, Jed. Did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on, you know, YouTube that's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.